Well, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're continuing our series in the book of Colossians. I've titled this series, In Him, because we are in union with Christ. We are connected to Him by faith. And today's big idea for the sermon may sound a little bit familiar to to you. No doubt you've heard variations of this phrase, or you've heard the original phrase. Today's a variation. But I promise that this actually comes straight out of the text and not the campaign trail and not the White House. And here's our big idea today. Make Jesus great again. It's actually what Paul is talking about in our passage today. It's what his ministry was all about. Because everywhere Paul went, whatever he suffered, especially as he suffered, his goal was the same. Make Jesus great again, to make Jesus large, to make Jesus big in the eyes of others. But how do we make Jesus great? How do we make Jesus large? How do we sinful, finite creatures magnify and make great and infinitely glorious God? Well, we know from our series last year on the undomesticated attributes of God that we can't make God anything. He is, as the Latin phrase that we've looked at a lot, the Latin phrase, a se, A-S-E, which means from himself. That's where we get the theological word, aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. God's aseity means that he is self-existent, he is self Sufficient. It means that he has life in himself, and it means that he has no needs whatsoever. God is a God of no needs, which is in stark contrast to us because we have all kinds of needs, don't we? So how do we, people who have lots of needs, how do we magnify, make big, make great, make large, a God who has no needs and a God who has life in himself? How do we do that? One of my favorite Old Testament scholars, Alan Ross, is very helpful here. He says this, But how can one make God great since God is already great? It can be done by extending the reputation of God through praise. When asserting the greatness of God in praise with specific details, the person and the works of the Lord will be magnified in the understanding of the congregation. People may know that God is great, But through praise, they will come to appreciate how great God is, and that may be greater than they ever realized. So, technically speaking, we don't make God big. We don't make God anything, right? Let me say that again. We don't make God anything. But we can increase and make big His reputation among us when we sing, when we teach, when we share His Word. When we sing and share with others specific details about who Jesus is and what he is like, when we share the gospel, the good news of Christ crucified for sinners, then we make him great in their eyes, the people that we're sharing with, and we make him great in our eyes. As we sing about God each week, when we gather, as we listen to his word being taught, his word being preached, We learn new things about him. We increase in our understanding of him. We are reminded again about who he is. 
So his character and his reputation, who the real Jesus is, just gets bigger and bigger and bigger in our eyes. That's growth in Christ. When Jesus gets bigger and bigger and bigger in your eyes, he becomes greater in your eyes. His reputation increases and grows among us. He becomes even greater in our thoughts than we realize. And that's what I mean when I say make Jesus great again. Now, let me show you where I'm getting that in Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 24 and hear the word of the Lord. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now notice two things about Paul's ministry. One, Paul rejoices in his sufferings. Secondly, Paul suffers for their sake, for the sake of the Colossians. Paul suffers for the sake of the body of Christ and those who would come to know Christ through his ministry. So first, Paul rejoices in his sufferings. And I don't think Paul is speaking about suffering in general here, the kind of suffering that we all experience in this fallen world. I think Paul specifically has in mind suffering as it relates to his ministry. He suffers when he preaches Jesus, when he preaches Christ crucified for sinners. In fact, Paul knew at his conversion that his ministry would be characterized not by conference speaking, not by book tours, not by pastoring a large church, not by being a mega pastor of a mega church, but by suffering. We read about that in Acts chapter 9. Let me read verses 15 to 16 to you. But the Lord said to him, Ananias, go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. How's that? Jesus is like, welcome to ministry. You're going to be a pastor. I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer. Paul knew at his conversion that God's plan for his ministry was that he would go to the Gentile world and that his ministry would be primarily marked by suffering, not by speaking at pastor's conferences, not by having book signings at the parable. And Paul gives us a sample of what his ministry was like in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, plural, with countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. We still got a few more verses to read. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That's what ministry looked like for Paul. Thrown in jail, beaten, near death, often. Whipped on five different occasions for a total of 195 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Rocks were thrown at him. Shipwrecked three times. Floating in the sea for 24 hours. Danger, danger, danger from everybody and everywhere he went. 
sleepless nights, hungry, thirsty, often without food, cold and exposure, being exposed to the elements, and on top of that, all the drama and all the cares and all the concerns that come with pastoral ministry that were weighing on his, his heart. All the problems and all the churches that you read about in his letters, all of that was weighing on his heart as well. That was ministry for the Apostle Paul. And he rejoices through it all. How? How does he do it? Not because he was a super Christian. Paul can rejoice because he knows, he'll mention it in verse 29, that the Spirit of God is powerfully working within him with this energy. But Paul can rejoice when he suffers for preaching Jesus because he knows this is the plan. This is the way. Paul Tripp said, suffering doesn't mean that God's plan has failed. Suffering is the plan. Suffering is a part of discipleship. It's not all of it, but it is a significant part. We follow Jesus in his sufferings. We take up our cross and follow him. We share abundantly in his sufferings. This is the plan, and that's why Paul says that suffering was for their sake, for the Colossians. Paul suffers for the sake of the Colossian church. He suffers for the body of Christ. What he endures is for the cause. The gospel going into the Gentile world so that Jesus can build his church. We see this with three phrases. Verse 24, for your sake. Verse 24, for the sake of the body that is the church. Verse 27, the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. For your sake, for the sake of the church, for you. Paul's ministry was all about others. Seeing other people come to treasure Jesus through his suffering. And we know that suffering is the plan because Jesus suffered for us, for our sin on the cross. God's eternal plan was that Jesus would suffer throughout his life, culminating in the cross. That means that the cross wasn't plan B, it was the plan from the beginning. God loved us so much that he gave up his son Jesus for our sin. And this is why Paul can rejoice as he suffers because he knows this is the plan. This is what the Lord told me when I was regenerated and became a Christian. He's following in the steps of his Savior and rejoicing on the way. Doesn't mean that Paul doesn't have bad days. Okay, He talks about that in 2 Corinthians 1. Things were so bad, he said, I just wanted to die. But he can be in that place and eventually come around to, I will rejoice in this. So Paul isn't constantly rejoicing. He has days where he's down in the dumps, but he recalibrates his heart and says, you know what, I can rejoice through this. It's like something Martin Luther said years after Luther was quarantined at the castle Coburg during the Diet of Augsburg. A friend visited the room that Luther had been staying in. Um, and in the room, he found that Martin Luther had written all over the walls all these thoughts and phrases that stabilized him. And this is one thing that he wrote on the wall that his friend read. Luther wrote, There are times when, for the sake of God's word, we must endure the hardship, anguish, and persecution which the Holy Cross brings upon us. In such times, we can rightfully bestir and strengthen ourselves with God's help in such a way that we can be bold, alert, and cheerful, committing our cause to God's gracious and fatherly will. Luther, like Paul, knew that there are times when disciples must endure hardship and anguish and persecution because of the cross. In short, discipleship involves a lot of suffering. 
Following Jesus means that suffering for him is the plan. It doesn't mean the plan has failed. Suffering is the plan. And in those times of hardship and anguish and persecution, we must strengthen ourselves with God's help, with his power, which so powerfully, his energy, which so powerfully works in us. Paul's going to get to that verse. So that we can be bold, alert, and cheerful. We commit ourselves to God's gracious and fatherly will. And that's Paul here. That's what he has done. But then Paul says something really strange in verse 24. And maybe when I read it, you're like, what in the world does that mean? You're supposed to read this verse and say, what in the world does that mean? Let me read it. Verse 24. He says, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What in the world does that even mean? What does it mean that Paul is filling up in his body what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, for starters, Paul is not saying that what Jesus did on the cross was not sufficient. Paul is not saying that he adds to the work of Christ in any way. Nothing is lacking in the finished work of Christ. When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, he meant that. He did all that was required to bring sinners back to God. So is Paul saying that somehow he shares or adds to Christ's sufferings on the cross? The answer is no. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that whenever a Christian suffers for being a Christian because they're engaged in the ministry of the gospel, it constitutes Christ's afflictions. In other words, when we suffer for being Christians... For what we believe, because it's real practical for where we're at in our age today, all right? When we suffer as Christians for what we believe, the Bible says, culture and social media says something different. When we suffer for what we believe, God's word says, it's precisely because we are linked to and united to Christ. Jesus himself said in Luke 21, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. It's because of him that we suffer. So Paul calls them Christ's afflictions. Paul actually uses the same words fill up or complete and lacking. He uses these same words in Philippians 2 when he asks the Philippian church to welcome Epaphroditus. Let me read it to you. Philippians 2, 29 to 30. It sheds light on what this verse in Colossians means. Paul said, so receive him, Epaphroditus, In the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete or fill up what was lacking in your service to me. So those same two words, complete or fill up and lacking, are used in Colossians as well, and they help us what Paul understand what Paul is saying. In Philippians, Paul is in prison, he's unable to see the Philippian church that he loves, and they love him so much. So they took up an offering and some sort of gift, maybe like a a care basket or something, and they want a FedEx it to Paul. So they sent a man named Epaphroditus to carry this gift, whatever it was, to Paul in Rome as he's in jail to show their love for him. So it was Epaphroditus showing up in person with these gifts, with the gift basket or something, him showing up in person filled up or completed the love and service of the Philippians that was lacking in Paul's life. The physical presentation through Epaphroditus completed their love and service for Paul. 
Here's what one commentator, Martin Vincent, said. The gift to Paul was a gift of the church as a body. It was a sacrificial offering of love. Notice the sacrificial offering like Jesus. What was lacking was the church's presentation of this offering in person. This was impossible. And Paul represents Epaphroditus as supplying this lack by his affectionate, zealous ministry. So when Paul says in Colossians, in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, he means that what is lacking is someone showing up in person and sharing the gospel with unbelievers. What is lacking is a gospel witness. What is lacking is someone showing up in person and telling other people that Jesus loves them and died on the cross for their sins. This is why we support missionaries, isn't it? Because as Romans 10 says, how will they hear if no one goes? In other words, Paul and any missionary or any disciple or any member or regular attender of Grace Baptist Church We basically say this when we go share the gospel with someone. We're basically saying, I'm taking the message of the cross, that Christ was crucified for sinners, and I'm taking it to lost people, and when I share it, I may suffer for it. Because Jesus can't go on mission trips and share the gospel. Jesus can't go to your workplace and share the gospel. Now, we know he's God. He can do that. But you know what I mean, right? He's not going to show up in person. He has you there. But you can go there and share. And when you share the gospel with people at your workplace or your neighbors, you may suffer for it. Jesus has commissioned us to go share the good news. And when we do, we may suffer massive affliction for it. We may be persecuted, especially in our culture today, with issues surrounding gender, sexuality, marriage, as we see with the the shooting in Nashville this last week. Persecution towards Christians is on the rise in America. Not over there, some other part of the world. It's here. It's on our front porch now. You will be persecuted when you stand up in this culture and you say, I believe this is what God's word says about gender, marriage, and sexuality. Now understand this, Christian. When you stand up for truth... In this cultural climate, you will be persecuted. You will be hated. If you stand up and present a biblical view of gender, sexuality, and marriage, in today's climate, you will suffer. But we don't have to live in fear. Let me say that again. We don't have to live in fear. People who have to live in fear are those who are not following Jesus because what does he say in the Gospels? Fear the one who can not only take your life but cast you into hell. We don't have anything to fear. We'll be wise, but we don't have to fear. What we do is we pray for steel spines to stand up for truth, and we pray for soft hearts to understand that when we share the gospel, we're sharing it with people who are lost, dead in their sins. So we pray for steel spines, courage, and then we pray for soft hearts, that our hearts break for those who are lost. We love people. But that doesn't mean that we don't speak truth. So let me give you some advice, especially in our time with social media and everything. Here's some advice. This is free for you, okay? Preach Jesus, but don't be a jerk, okay? Man, half the issues of our day 
with Christians interacting with the world would be solved just by that. Preach Jesus, but don't be a jerk. Preach Jesus as the only hope. Preach Christ crucified for sinners. Preach Jesus as the returning king. Call people to repentance. Call them to place their trust in him. But for crying out loud, don't be a jerk. Suffer because of Jesus, not because you're a jerk. And when you preach Jesus, you will be filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And you might even become a martyr. Perhaps, because there seems to be a certain number of martyrs, certain number of suffering that God has predetermined, as we see in Revelation chapter 6. Let me read the verses to you. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So there appears to be a number of martyrs that the Lord knows that is filling up. And I think there appears to be a number of sufferings that we as Christians must endure and go through that fills up until Christ says, now is the time. So when we share Jesus in person with others, we will suffer. We, like Paul, will fill up, we will complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, meaning that number that is increasing. It might be martyrdom. It might be persecution of some kind. It might be losing a job or losing a friendship. And when we suffer for following and sharing Jesus, in a sense then, unbelievers will see the sufferings of Christ. They will see the sufferings of Christ in your life. We share in his afflictions when we share Christ. And knowing this, knowing this, that we're going to suffer, we still share because what? People are lost and dead in sin. This is the cost of letting sinners who don't know Jesus come to know Jesus. The cost is that we may suffer to share good news. Listen, unbelievers will never trust in and treasure Christ until we make Jesus great again. Until we personally go and share the hope that we have, they will not see Jesus as glorious and magnificent and loving and merciful and kind. Unbelievers cannot believe the good news unless they hear the good news. Until we show up in person with boots on the ground. They will never treasure Jesus unless we personally show up like Epaphroditus did to Paul. Unless we personally show up with the gift, the good news of the gospel, and we share it with them, and we make Jesus great in their eyes. And that's why Paul works for the good of the church, because the church is the boots on the ground presence of Jesus in this world. We're here to make the gospel known, to make Jesus great, which is exactly what Paul says next. Look at verse 25. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul's goal in ministry was to make the word of God fully known. Paul is not out to make a name for himself. Paul was not a narcissistic pastor. He talks about his ministry, yes, but he connects it to God and the Colossians. His ministry was one of suffering, Not 
conference speaking and book tours. And what Paul wanted to make fully known, he says, was a mystery. What was this mystery? Here's the mystery that God saves Gentiles. When Paul says mystery, he means that the gospel in the Old Testament, the gospel is for Gentiles, but it was hidden somewhat in the Old Testament. There were glimpses of it. You saw Gentiles come to faith in Yahweh, like Ruth and Rahab and others. There were glimpses of Gentiles coming to faith in Yahweh, but it was hidden somewhat. And Paul's saying now the gospel is out in the open. Because in the Old Testament, it was a come and see gospel. The nations were invited to come and learn about Yahweh and to place their faith in him. But there were no missionaries in the Old Testament. I mean, yeah, Jonah went, but you know what I mean. In general, it was a, it was a come and see religion. You come here and learn about us. We'll tell you about Yahweh. But it switches in the New Testament from a come and see to a go and tell gospel. Go to the nations. Go to Gentiles. The mystery is out in the open now as the gospel, as the riches of God's glory are now shared with the nations. The mystery that has now been revealed is the hope of glory, which is Christ dwelling in his church. Christ dwelling even among Gentiles. Listen, that was shocking. Christ dwelling among Gentiles. We don't understand that. Okay, Jews hearing that would have been shocked. What? Christ dwelling among, among those people? Oh, they're dirty and filthy. We don't like those people. Major, major racism in the early church. It's, it's how we got deacons. Deacons came about because... They had some issues, some racial tension with, with the Greeks who were not getting served or getting served and that. So major racial tensions here in the New Testament between Jews and everybody else, the Gentiles. They were seen as dirty. Christ dwelling even among Gentiles. Shocking. God, because he is kind and merciful, chose to make known how great and magnificent his son is among the nations, among Gentiles. And that should cause a very big amen to erupt out of us here because most of us are Gentiles. You should read that Christ, the hope of glory dwelling among Gentiles and say, amen, that's me. Because we were excluded for the most part before, right? Most of us here are not Jewish. But God has revealed to Gentiles in the gospel just how great Jesus is. God has made known to us the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Jesus in us, the hope of glory. And it's this great Jesus that Paul preaches. Look at verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Him we proclaim. Oh, that pastors could get this. We're called to preach Christ, the wisdom of God, to admonish and teach others about Jesus. And so we see that Jesus is the center of Paul's teaching ministry, not Paul. What is the goal of Paul's ministry? Maturity in Christ. Preaching Christ matures disciples because he is the source of all wisdom. Christ's wisdom matures disciples, not seven steps to be a better neighbor. Listen, that kind of preaching will not mature you as a Christian. Seven steps to be a better neighbor. 
That will not mature you. That will not cause you to grow in Christ. That's why Paul says that he struggles with all this energy to preach Christ and to see people mature because Paul knows that it does not take supernatural strength to preach seven steps to a better marriage, which so many pastors preach. It does not take supernatural power and energy to preach seven steps to a better marriage. You can get that from Oprah. You can get that from The View. You can get that from anywhere. It doesn't take supernatural power to preach that, but it takes the power of God this energy powerfully working within us to preach Christ crucified because preaching Christ crucified might get you crucified. Paul suffers because he preaches Christ crucified, that Jesus came to die for sinners. Listen, you won't suffer if you preach seven steps to being a great co-worker. You won't. No one's going to hate you if you preach seven steps to being a great co-worker. But you will suffer if you preach Jesus. You won't suffer when you talk about sports. Or maybe you will. Maybe there's a Philadelphia Eagles fan who will remind you of how bad the Dallas Cowboys are. So you may suffer. But usually you won't suffer talking sports at work. But if you talk about Jesus at work, you talk about Jesus with your neighbor, then you will suffer in some way and especially so in our culture now. Paul makes Christ large by sharing Jesus, and that brings suffering into his life. And what is the answer to Paul's suffering? What does Paul need as he suffers because he makes Christ large? He needs to see Christ as large. So the calling to make Christ large brings suffering, and the answer to the suffering that comes into your life when you make Christ large, the answer is that you need to see Christ as large again. And as we make Jesus great in our world and in our church and in our ministries, then guess what? We become smaller, don't we? See how that works? We become humble. We make life and ministry about Jesus. As Paul says in verse 28, him we proclaim. Listen, there are enough narcissistic pastors out there. You've seen them. Everything is about them. They think they're the, these are the kind of pastors who will put a quote of themselves up on their social media. Not a quote from some other pastor. They'll make a meme with their name at the end of their great quote and post it on their own social media as if to say, look at my wisdom. Instead of posting a quote from somebody else, they'll post their own. There's enough narcissistic pastors in this world. Paul's like, you know what? No, him we proclaim. And that's what people need to hear when they are suffering, they need a big Jesus. So when you are suffering, you don't need somebody to come alongside you and say, let me give you seven steps to having a fulfilled life. You need a big Jesus when you are suffering. Whether you're suffering persecution because you're a Christian or you're suffering cancer, broken relationships, marital problems, whatever, you fill in the blank. You need a big Jesus. You don't need seven steps to whatever. Joe Novison said, to my friends, I ask one thing in my suffering, make Christ large to me. The one thing when we, we need when we suffer, either with cancer or wayward children or marital issues or persecution, the one thing we need is to have friends to come alongside us to present Jesus to us again as this massive, all-powerful, all-wise, all-sufficient Savior. 
We need people to remind us of God's character, remind us of his reputation, remind us of his promises, who he is, and what he is like. When you are suffering, you need to tell your closest Christian friends two things. You need to say, I am suffering. And you need to say, make Christ large to me. The first one's the hardest, probably, is opening up and just saying, you know what, I'm suffering. Listen, you are safe to do that here at Grace. We want you to come here, get to know people, and say, my marriage is struggling. I'm struggling as a parent. I'm struggling at work. I am suffering. You need to tell people that. And then you need to say, and now make Christ large to me. Now, there are times where someone's suffering, and they don't need any words. They just need your presence. They just need you to be there, hold their hand, put your arm around them, hug them, and you just sit with them, okay? So I'm not saying that you go to someone immediately that's suffering and say, well, you know Romans 8.28 says that God works all things together for those who love him are called according to his purpose, right? Okay, there are times when people are suffering and they just need someone's presence. They don't need Job's friends to show up, okay? The other times when we're suffering, when we don't just need somebody's presence, but we need words, you need to go to people and say, I am suffering and I need you to make Jesus big to me again because I've shrunk him down in my mind and my heart and this problem or situation is larger and it's looming over me and here's this big problem and then here's Jesus and you need to say I need you to make Jesus big again so that my problem gets smaller and smaller when you're suffering heartache suffering brokenness suffering sadness suffering pain suffering betrayal suffering sickness suffering persecution and hatred because you stand up for God's truth You need to let people know because you cannot do it alone. One of the Paul's opening up to the Colossians here, isn't he? I'm suffering. One of the ways that the Holy Spirit will strengthen you with his energy that powerfully works within you, verse 29. One of the ways when you suffer and the Spirit strengthens you with his power and energy is he does it through other people. You've got to let someone in on the pain and suffering. And then you need to tell them, make Christ large to me. Tell me about my Savior again. Talk to me about his sovereignty. Tell me that his grace is sufficient. Remind me that he works all things together for my good. Whisper to me that his strength is made perfect in my weakness. Whatever you do, make Christ large to me. And if you're suffering and you just need someone's presence and you don't need words, then just say, I am suffering and I just need somebody to be with me. Not to talk just to sit. But you have to open up because this is how the Spirit works in you. Listen, your brothers and sisters in Christ that are suffering, they already know that Jesus is great. When you're suffering, you already know that Jesus is great. What you and they need is for people to tell you about Jesus again. They need you to remind them about Jesus, to preach the gospel to them, to tell them about Jesus once more, to make Jesus great again and again and again and again. When they are suffering, tempted, struggling, full of despair, and lost all hope, or they're experiencing persecution or in danger of losing their job because they are Christian, they need you to make Jesus great again in their eyes. This is what ministry in the church is all about. And it's what evangelism and missions is all about, making Jesus great in the eyes and ears of others who have not heard. So this week, with fellow believers and with unbelievers, go and make Jesus great again. You have nothing to fear. So many Christians are cowering today and giving in 
to the movement with gender and sexuality, and they're so fearful that they're cowering and giving in and watering down their own beliefs and what they say God's word says, and they're opening themselves up to this and saying, okay, we'll affirm you because of fear. They're afraid of what might happen. They're afraid of persecution. They're afraid somebody might cancel them. They're afraid someone may not like them. This is the time to stand up. Don't be a jerk. Pray for a steel spine and a soft heart, but to stand up and say, you know what? No. To push back against this agenda that's out there. So this week, go make Jesus great again in your life, on your social media. Today, we have one of the most tangible ways to see a big Jesus, and it's right here with the Lord's Supper. This meal is proof that God is great. He sent Jesus to live and die on our behalf, and now he welcomes all sinners with open arms. Isn't that great? He welcomes sinners with open arms. At this table, we make Jesus great again. We come and we find a great Savior. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, said this towards the end of his life. He said, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And that's what we celebrate at the table today. Let's pray. Jesus, we admit that we need you especially in light of things happening in our world today, Lord. We need your energy powerfully working in us so that we can share you, Jesus, share the good news with the lost and dying and angry world. So strengthen us by your Spirit. It's one thing we need from this table is your grace, your power to live for you on the journey that we're on to the city that is to come. So Jesus, strengthen us as we eat and drink today at this table. And then Jesus, we need you even more than we need your energy and power to stand up for truth today. Jesus, we need you because of our sin. We need you to help confront sin and expose sin in our world. But Jesus, we need you even more to confront and expose the sin in our own hearts. Because it's there, Jesus. And so we come to this table knowing that we just bring our sin and we bring the empty hands of faith and say we're, we're trusting in you and what you have done for us. So cleanse us and wash us and purify us today, Lord. We want to come celebrating this morning to this table. If there are no hoops to jump through, we just come and say, by faith, we believe that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So help us to rejoice, to think about how great of a God you are, what you've done for us through your cross and resurrection. In your name we pray, amen.